0: real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Prince Edward Island is one of the most beautiful provinces in Canada. Its wind-swept beaches are stunning. Its friendly people are some of the friendliest in this entire country. It has beautiful golf courses, scenic terrain. Its people have a proclivity for incredible music inspired by both Celtic and French roots. It is the setting for Anne of Green Gables. It is a deep, almost magical connection to the waters that surround it. And if you can catch the perfect day at the perfect hour, it feels like a small piece of heaven. However, in this show, we haven't really talked much about that province. It's kind of slipped through the historical cracks. And that's on me. Today, I want to take a small step towards rectifying that because one of the most interesting stories about PEI is how it came about joining Canada. Despite the first of the Confederation conferences occurring in Charlottetown, PEI was eventually left off the roster when the Dominion of Canada was first formed. Why did it not join in 1867? What occurred to make it join in 1873? These questions and more are answered today. This is Season 8, Episode 13, The Little Island That Could, Prince Edward Island and Confederation. (laughs) To explore our subject matter today, we brought in an expert, and that expert is historian and podcaster Christopher Dummett. Christopher is a professor at Trent University. He is the author of the book Unbuttoned, a history of Mackenzie King's secret life. And he runs the podcast 1867 and all that. There are two full seasons now with 24 episodes. It's like a history of Rome, but for Canadian politics. And of course, Christopher is a lover of good stories. I began our discussion by asking Christopher to give us some background context to the discussions over Confederation in the 1860s.
0: All right. Well, I mean, I'd say essentially it's a Canadian story, but by Canadian, I don't mean that what we think of as Canada now is in all the provinces across Canada. It's a Canadian story in that it's the, the province of Canada, which included Upper Canada and Lower Canada, what we now think of Canada, East Canada, West, what we now think was Quebec and Ontario, I mean, the whole push for a British North American Union to join these colonies together is fundamentally a Canadian problem, and it's 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 to solve it's to solve a Canadian problem. It's a Canadian problem that was created when Upper and Lower Canada were pushed together in 1841 in the Union of the Canths after the rebellions of 1837 and 38. Uh, you know, we, people know about Lord Durham's report, come in and investigate the causes of what went wrong, and and the British are trying to think how do we. How do we you know, prevent this from happening again? And you know, the solution is to push these two colonies together in a single province. Uh, and they do it in this kind of fascinating and in, in some ways unfair way, um, which is to say that they give equal representation to the two sections in the assembly. Uh, so each, each side gets kind of 42 seats in this assembly. And initially the lower Canadians, especially the French Canadians, are furious about this for they're furious for a bunch of reasons, but they're furious because they have a larger population. This is really, they're, they're saddled with this, you know, with this being, with being underrepresented. The problem is that over the course of the 1840s, 1850s, um, uh, you know, the, the the Canada West population, upper Canada population just continues to grow at, at a faster rate than 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 than, uh, uh, you know, lower Canada, uh, uh, Canada East. And they are so increasing. It's Canada West, who is perfectly happy in the 1841 to have equal seats. Now they're furious. This is so undemocratic. How could this be the case? Um, so that's one. That's the main issue. And, and so the Canada West politicians, especially a guy who eventually comes to be the, the head of the kind of main opposition force, a guy named George Brown, head of the the editor of the Glo- the Globe newspaper, you know, ferocious debater, fascinating guy. And he wants, and as other people of his allies want, rep by pop, representation by population, equal, you know, basically, it's essentially a very democratic argument. They want the the, the representatives in the assembly to be kind of roughly equal in terms of who they represent as voters. So it all sounds fine, except... In the, at the end of the 1840s, I know this is a long backstory, but it's it's useful to get the long backstory. At The end of the 1840s, the Canadas first, uh, well, Nova Scotia first, and the Canadas win what's called responsible government, which is essentially um, the the British Westminster style democracy in North America. They, they Canes win their the foundations of Canadian democracy are really uh, uh, in that th- those fights for responsible government, and by 1848 49. The candidates of fundamentally one responsible government. So parliament really matters now. The, the governors who had previously, you know, they'd certainly listened to the assemblies. The assemblies have been powerful, but now the governors are increasingly less, less powerful. It's the assemblies who are, and the cabinets who are having this great power. And so is, these issues really come to matter. And then the final element of this recipe of what becomes this recipe of instability and, and kind of chaos is all the divisions within the candidates, linguistic and especially religious, right? You know, the, you just can't overestimate the importance of religious factionalism to the Canada of the 1850s and 1860s. This mattered as profoundly as all the cultural war issues more than they do now, About issues of race, religion is so, and it's tied up also in ethnicity around Irish Catholics, French Catholics. So it's, it's tied into ethnicity, but religious fundamentally matters. Uh, Religion fundamentally matters. And French Canadians are pretty good at voting as a bloc together. They see themselves as having a national interest in voting together. And the the the, the other Canadians, English Canadians in Lower Canada, so there's a certain number in Lower Canada and then and in Upper Canada, then but they're quite divided by a whole series of loyalties of political beliefs. And so the the, the faction amongst the faction that wins essentially, initially the reformers, and then by the 1850s the, the conservatives is the faction which can ally with the, the, the large French-Canadian bloc. But, okay, all, so all these things together, but by the end of the 1850s and into the 1860s, the thing is, Canada West's population has grown so much. There's such division within Canada West that, that any faction that comes to, to, to head up a government is just very unstable. And so that by the 1860s, you're having governments come in and get voted out, get voted in and voted out. And there's just a real frustration with being able to, to, to solve problems. And there's also a growing you know, you know, recognition, even amongst Canadian Tories, say those who follow Johnny MacDonald and his party that's allied with the French Canadian bloc, who had previously not been in favour of Rep by Pop, because it kind of benefited them to, to ally with the French Canadians. And they couldn't guarantee that they would be the, the faction which would come out of English Canada if, if they did get Rep by Pop. So many of their supporters by the early 1860s think it think it makes sense. They just it becomes increasingly difficult not to do this. So, 1863, 1864, there's a kind of rise and fall of a series of these governments, and 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 uh, uh, you get this point where in 1864, kind of in the, the spring and summer of 1864, it looks like there's going to be another government's going to fall, and they're you know they're going to have to go to another election, which will be inconclusive. And then uh, uh, George Brown, the, the kind of impossible man, a man who he thought he could never really form a government because he was so, he was hated by so many French Canadians. You know, he couldn't really lead a government. In the midst of this, he does this really unexpected thing. Is he, 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 he lets it be known that he, had, he would be open um, to supporting a kind of coalition government with his, his enemies, his personal enemy, John A. Macdonald, who he's got a real beef with, and 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 Georges Saint-Cartier, the leader of the French-Canadian bloc, and, and others. Now, he doesn't initially want to be part of himself, although he's later convinced he should be part of it. But he kind of presents us all of Branches. Okay, I'll be part of this coalition if, if the, the aim of the coalition isn't to govern indefinitely, but is to create a wider union of British North America. And so this is the kind of real turning point in the confederation story there's this has been a canadian problem which has grown up and so george brown does this kind of amazing thing he says okay i'll i'll, I'll go against what have been some of my principles if we can get this thing i want because he he wants and insists that if it happens he'll get rep by pop interesting
1: so george brown is really kind of the the, tr- the trigger man on, on this whole momentum isn't he
0: Yeah, he is. It's funny because obviously, you know, uh, uh, Johnny McDonald gets a lot of credit because he's such a he's he's the vastly more skilled politician. But McDonald, until really the last minute, he he's speaking against uh, British North American Union and Confederation. But he he, he's he's very astute politically. And so as soon as it seems like this, this is a a possibility, he just turns around and says, "Okay, let's do it. And then, you know, uh, you know, heads to the front of the of, of the flock.
1: So, okay, great. So we, we, we established this very, like you said, this very Canadian um, problem. And George Brown sort of is the first to sort of say, look, let's try to break, let's try to break this political deadlock effectively. And, and George Brown's vision is sort of this wider, uh, you you know, not confederation necessarily yet, but this wider sort of political body. So let's move over to Prince Edward Island then. So at the same time that this is kind of going on in the Canada's, what is going on demographically, politically and economically in Prince Edward Island?
0: So PEI is, I mean, I think it's one of the most fascinating story, provincial histories that that probably everyone outside of PEI, maybe many people in PEI don't know. PEI is this unique province within Canada. It is created very unlike just, just about any other, which is to say, when the British take control of, of what was called Ile Saint-Jean, saint John saint Island, in, in after the Treaty of Paris, after the, you know, the, everyone knows the Battle of the uh, uh, Plains of Abraham, but, you know, that that's when... St. John Island later becomes Prince Edward Island becomes part of the kind of British Empire. Um, there are only like several hundred people, Acadians, uh, Micmac, living on the island. It's very, it's really uh, largely not, not uninhabited, but largely uninhabited on, on, on a full time basis. And so, the British decide that they're going to treat that island very differently. They're going to separate it apart from the rest of Acadia. Um, and they're going to say, okay, we're going to treat that very differently. And they, they hold a lottery, which is to say a, a land lottery to, they divide the island into 67 different massive estates and they allow essentially loyalists in, in, in England to, to join this lottery and they're, and they're provided, they, they win or they, they, they purchase in some ways through this lottery. Or they, they're offered the chance to purchase these massive landed estates. And so this is different than every other place where land grants, sometimes there are large land grants, but the idea is you're going to, you're going to have individual farmers taking up private property and that's the real push. So PEI does this very different thing. And now the British government wants, and it insists that, that they, uh, that, that the l- l- landowners, uh, settle these estates and they, they actually want them to settle, settle them from Protestants outside the British empire, which never really happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a variety of reasons, the, the isolation, the difficulty of this, that never really happens. It's very difficult to settle. There's the American Revolutionary Wars uh, intervening, the Napoleonic Wars. And so most of the settlement that happens in PEI comes really in the period after the uh, Napoleonic Wars, after 1815. Um, and the by the time we get the 1860s, you know, PEI is settled by a kind of a a mix of, of Protestants and Catholics, quite a, an, not an equal mix. The Catholics are in the minority, but they're a pretty substantial minority, Scotch and Irish mostly. Um, but the politics of PEI, you know, you have the same stories there about the fight for responsible government that happened, you know, and the PEI gets it in the early 1850s. Um, and you know, you get, so you get the same kinds of politics, but the one unique feature is this whole land question. Because, um, the, the, the people who eventually settle in PEI, many of them do not have freehold tenure, right? And they are, they're, they're tenants or in some cases they're squatters. And uh, so they're kind of insistent on you know, getting their own property rights. They want to purchase the lands, but often the landlords aren't keen to, to sell their properties. The landlords are almost all, almost all absentee landlords still in Britain. They see these big estates as just kind of land, land investments, right? Um, so not what the British government wanted them to do. They're represented on the island by these agents, these land agents who are really the, 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 the upper upper middle class, the, 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 the administrative class of, of PEI for the most part. These people who are acting on behalf of the landlords in, in connection with the tenants, and they, they are the kind of educated um, elite in the colony and everyone thinks they're kind of getting screwed. So the landlords think, think they're not getting enough rent. And and there's the tenants are always going into arrears on their rent. And then there are all these local customs, which happen. So you're not going to pay interest on your arrears and this. And so they're upset. The, the, the land agents are feel torn between them and, and the, the, the tenants and squatters feel, you know, they can't purchase their land. They're different. They can't, if they make improvements on the land, they're not going to benefit from that. So all of the politics of the island so much focus on this land question. Um, a whole bunch of people try to solve problems. There's a, there's a radical movement in the 1830s to try and take the, the rights of the landlords away from them, the Ashit movement, it's called, and that that fails. Um, and so if we take you right up to the to eve of Confederation, there's a, there's a big land commission, which gets established in 1860, which tries to find a solution. And they, they essentially probably do find a good solution, but the British government at the behest of, of the pro- proprietors, the landholders, they nix it and and don't go along with it. So on the eve of Confederation, PEI has got a responsible government. It's got a politics centered around land, and they're looking for a solution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the
1: wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, that's interesting. So you have this uh, movement towards confederation in the Canadas. You have PEI with this very serious land issue. Um we we do know that the other the maritime colonies have also been discussing broadly a form of maritime union as well, right? So when PEI is first approached, what what are what do they lay out as their sort of concerns? Okay, if you want us to join, here are the things we we need to have taken care of, and obviously, I'm sure the land question is going to be part of that.
0: I mean, uh, I would say initially, disinterest is the. Oh, okay, the main interesting. Part. Go ahead. Could, could so you explain I think,
1: more about that if you don't mind? Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that the, so the idea of maritime union, which is floated for around, you know, which is basically rejoining up all of these areas, which have been divided up because it had been all of one Acadia under new France. And they say, let's join them all back up together and create this kind of single, single province. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an intellectually interesting idea. And it's taken up by in the 1860s, various people, but in in particular, the, the governor of New Brunswick, Arthur Gordon. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of interest in it. I would say there's certainly not a lot of popular excitement about it. But the Maritimers, they what they in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, what they really want is a railroad joining both to the U.S. but then also to the Canada's. They want they want access to markets, right? They want they want to be part of the the dynamic market of the day, and railroads are, should do that. And at a moment when the the possibility of an intercolonial railway, a railway joining Canada to the Maritimes, is it seems, it seems it's being discussed, seriously discussed, and then it seems to fall away. It's in that one moment that they say, maybe we should re- resurrect this Maritime Union idea. And so it seems to be going ahead. They say we should hold a conference. But the fact is, and this is all happening in 1864 in the lead up to um, what's going on in the Canadas. So when when the Canadians decide okay we're going to form a new government to to have british north american union they say and then uh, uh governor general lord monk in canada writes down to this his maritime counterparts the the, the the lieutenant governors there and says okay w- the canadians would like to come to your conference that you're going to host on maritime union the maritime is like oh i guess we better organize that conference they hadn't <laughs> set a date they hadn't set a place so they quickly say oh i guess we'll do this and so they set a time for the conference the charlotte famous charlottetown conference on the 1st of september And they host it in Charlottetown, largely because they're not convinced that the the Prince Edward Island delegates would even come if they hosted it in Fredericton or Halifax. So that gives you some idea of Prince Edward Island excitement about Confederation. Um, But I I didn't answer your question about what PEI. Yeah. So, I mean, so in terms of what PEI would want, I mean, so the dilemma, and this actually Peter Waite, the historian, he wrote this great book back in the sixties about Confederation. He, he he said a great line about how you know Confederation uh, uh, you know is a solution to a Canadian problem, and, and the Maritimers you know it, it, the, the Canadians have to find a way to convince the Maritimers. Mm-hmm. Now for the New Brunswickers and Nova Scotians, they want a railway. It's a real sense that this this could genuinely benefit them. So that that's a real practical fundamental uh, benefit. If you're living on Prince Edward Island. You don't think that benefits you? It doesn't, you know. Your access to markets isn't going to come through a, a, a railway joining to to, to Canada. Um, it's quite isolated, especially if you're thinking of a time before serious kind of seagoing vessels. It's 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 frozen away for much of the year. They're not even sure that they could. If the capital, of course, is going to be somewhere not in PEI, they're not even sure their delegates can get to the capital and back and forth travel effectively. So they see a lot of potential losses here. Loss of of their independence, a loss of their assembly potentially. Um, and you know the one benefit I, I think that they could have been convinced by is if there had been some potential to solve the landlord problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I can go on a little bit about more of that if you want. Yes, please. So in, back in 1853, a, a, a liberal government after trying to solve past laws to improve the rights of tenants, and having each of these laws essentially annulled, they're not passed into law by the, the the governor and then the British government. They finally get one law passed, which is this uh, this 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 law, which says the government will then create a fund to purchase lands themselves from the proprietors and sell them on to to tenants. But it's almost completely unsuccessful in doing this. The one. A state they purchase ends up being an entirely corrupt sorry corrupt boondock where it seems the land agents kind of sold it on at, at a very uh, overinflated price so uh you know corruption and politics is nothing new um so if so but the solution then is they're always looking for for capital the government doesn't have that much money and so if the canadians offered a significant amount of capital to to go into that fund then you know some people at the time have said, and I think it's prob- probably right that it, it could have won over uh, supporters on the island.
1: Um, so is it f- so, okay. So this is interesting. So the famous Charlottetown conference, like the sort of con- the, the the beginning of the confederation Conference, is effectively, it, as we understand it in sort of the general narrative is really a conference, as you said, to sort of not trick, but to, to make it as easy as possible for the PEI delegates to go because they don't think they are. So, so broad disinterest. So, these, so we have a series of conferences that occur, ultimately leading to Prince Edward Island deciding that they will not join Canada in 1867 with the Sun Folds. Is the land question the only issue that leads to them backing out?
0: No, it's not. Um, and let, let, let me tell one more anecdote before we get into that story, because I think because it's not that no one in PEI was supportive. And so there's this one guy, William Pope, and he's, he's got a brother, James Pope, and they come together in interesting ways. And William Pope is the guy, and this is a famously told story in, in, in the story of the Confederation, the Charlottetown Conference. You know, on, on the, when the Canadians are arriving the 1st of September, the night, day before, the circus is in town. And so when the Canadian ship, the, the Victoria, arrives in the harbor, the whole cabinet, of PI, they're at the circus like everybody else. Like they haven't had a circus in 20 years. Everyone's excited. All the hotels are full. And the one guy who gets literally on what was called a bum boat, this little tiny rowboat, and he's sitting on a barrel and he goes out, rows out to see the, uh, the meet the Canadians is a, is this w- William Pope, and he's a real keen supporter of Confederation. So there is one guy, uh, poor William Pope. He, he he does do well in the end, but okay. Uh, but what is Pi? So you're right. There's a Charlottetown Conference, they sort of agree. that. you know, I think in the midst of all the, the 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 champagne drinking, there's there's some enthusiasm. I think there's there's a lot of excitement about it. But as the Charlottetown Conference then leads you know, a month and a half later to the Quebec Conference, and the actual details get worked out about what this will look like. You can see all these divisions emerging, and really especially from PI, and they're concerned that they will – on the one hand, it's about identity, right? Although the, 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 the new nation is going to be a feder- federation, so there's still going to be a local government. Most of the PEI delegates are pretty convinced that that level of government is going to be tiny and insignificant, right? It's not going to have ability to, to raise a lot of funds, and it's going to be a kind, of, kind of like a municipality. Um, so there's that issue. And then the representation in the, the central government, because, of course, George Brown is insistent that it be rep by pop, you know, PEI's population, you know, 80-something thousand in the 1860s, they're only going to get um, five seats in, in, in the Assembly, in the House of Commons, and so one of their delegates pushes we can just extend it to six seats. And this matters in this, you know, say, what's the difference of one, one extra seat? But P.I. is divided into three counties. And so it would be useful if they could have two seats per county, as opposed to this way of dividing it five over, over three counties that mathematically doesn't go very well. That just gets shut down at, at, at the Quebec conference. Then um, there's a question of the Senate right? The Senate is is such a weird document. It becomes this huge issue of debate at the Quebec conference, even though the Senate is such a ultimately not very meaningful institution, but it becomes this proxy by which the Maritimers and PEI especially say, you know, what's our status here? How many seats are we going to get in it? Because the Canadians see this. And I think most of the New Brunswickers and Nova Scotians sort of agree, is it? The, the joining of British North America is a union of three different sections. And in terms of population, they're kind of right. There's upper Canada, there's uh, lower Canada and there's there the other Maritimes. And at Charlottetown, they sort of agree with that. But then at Quebec, all, all of a sudden you get these people from Newfoundland coming in who weren't at the Charlottetown conference. And so you get this weird debate of how many seats these colonies from, from the Maritimes are each going to get in the Senate and it becomes this major sticking point. And I, you know, ultimately um, PEI doesn't get what they what they want. Well, they they sort of do. They sort of they, they sort of agree that the Newfoundland will be treated separately than than the others. And they, they sort of get what they want, but they, it still rankles the, the PEI delegates. So it's that kind of issues of identity and and at the, at the Charlottetown sorry at the Quebec conference the whole issue of money for uh, land purchases it just goes nowhere. It's it's just it just dropped. Right. So the one real incentive that could have been used to lure them in is just not significant. Now, you might say, why? why is this the case? And I think the, the thing is, for the Canadians, who are the real movers at the conference, they're moving almost every, you know, all these resolutions to put, the, to put, it, put things together. They need New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. They need the rail link. They need the, the ice-free port on the Atlantic. You know, people forget that the, the rail port, when you know, the Grand Trunk Railway, it ends up in Portland, Maine at this time. Like you take that railway up through throughout through to lower Canada to you know various spots, and then it heads over the it through the United States into Portland, Maine, and, and it heads off that way. The British North America, or the, certainly the Canadians, don't have a railway linked ice free port, so they need Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick to provide that. That's the that's what that's who they really care about. So PEI doesn't really matter as much to them, I think.
1: That's really interesting, and it's it's interesting that you said that how Newfoundland was going to be treated differently because today, of course, when you say maritimes that Newfoundland's not included in the concept of the Maritimes. Like like people from Newfoundland wouldn't identify as Maritimers uh, in the PEI, New Brunswick, Nova, Nova Scotia way, which is really interesting. So, okay, this is great. So you have this situation where PEI, like you said, this ice-free port is kind of crucial. It makes New Brunswick and Nova Scotia strategically and economically so vital to the Confederation project. PEI, you know, good addition, but there's not really any impetus on both sides, it seems like. To really make a deal that can stick, to really like dangle the carrot that will finally work, and then, of course, as we know from 1867 into the early 1870s, things begin to change. And maybe you could comment on what does change, because obviously the attitudes on both sides are changed dramatically during this period.
0: Yeah. So obviously, the the I mean, there's the whole story about after the, after the Quebec Conference, things almost fall apart. You know, the uh, the Canadians quickly agree to the the Quebec resolutions and they say, yes, we're going to do this. It goes through the assembly. It's fine. But, you know, famously New Brunswick, um, uh, uh, they have to have an election and, and the, the, you know, the, the, the premier there says we can't, you know, we can't pass these resolutions before we have an election. It has to be done then. And and New Brunswick defeats the government and an anti-confederation government comes in. And there's this whole long story that ultimately ends up at another conference in London and, and, you know, late 1866 coming into 1867. And, You know things that a deal gets worked out, and and interestingly, the two maritime premiers who are in London, while they're waiting for the Canadians to arrive in London, because the Canadians are very delayed arriving in London, they, you know, they float an idea that oh maybe we could find eight hundred thousand dollars to help fund the the land purchases. They're still on on Prince Edward Island, so they're still at the last minute floating ideas, but it, it it's rejected by Pi and and I think by the Canadians. So anyway, confederation happens. The first of July, officially eighteen sixty-seven. The new uh, Dominion of, of Canada is created, uh, and in Pi, there's there's really a sense initially that, that that's just absolutely fine by them. Uh, a new uh, it had been a Tory government. A new Liberal government comes in, gets elected in eighteen sixty-seven. In fact, the the one real one of the other the other great proponent of confederation in Prince Edward Island, this fascinating guy Edward Whalen, who's a journalist and and really a, a, a fascinating uh, a journalist, interesting guy, Irish Catholic. He's kind of like, he's kind of like the, the Darcy McGee of, of Prince Edward mm-hmm. Island. Um, he actually gets, he loses an election. He's, he's going to be presented to the cabinet, but he's the one liberal who's a real pro Confederate. And for various reasons, he loses his, his election. And so that's a real sense that on Prince Edward Island, the politicians feel that, you know, this public sentiment is really against confederation. It just doesn't seem to offer them anything. and It, it, it only presents these losses. Um, And it probably, it seems, would have stayed that way, uh, except most historians say the one thing that gets in the way is railways and not not the intercolonial railway. But in 1871, the Prince Edward Islanders decide that they're going to build their own railway. They're going to build their own railway, which kind of loops across from the east uh, to west, one side of the island to the other. And uh, like all railway stories of the 19th century, the the story of the P.I. Railway was one of incredible corruption, boondoggle, and just chaos. And so they don't set the railway up correctly. And so there's all this lobbying to have the, the, the different railway junctions come to certain communities and not others. And so you get this really winding railway, which is always, which the, and, this, and the government's going to have, a, it's going to be a fee per mile, but the, you know, the cost is just expanding. And, you know, the governments in the mid-19th century, they don't have very, very good ways of raising taxes, right? Taxes, government money comes from from tariffs, Um they just don't have the economic resources. So, 1871, they decide it. They start building right away, and by it's clear by the next year, by 1872, that the, the the railway is in significant debt, and and the government sponsoring it is it has all these responsibilities, and they they're stuck. They're gonna they have all this incredible financial um, chaos. But the thing is, they know that when one of the promises of to New Brunswick and Nova Scotia when they joined. Into the Dominion of Canada, was that the new Dominion government would take over all the debts of the the colonies coming into it, and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia both who had been building these you know partially built railways that was a real also incentive for them that they would get this this their debt taken over by the the, the national government, and so it becomes clear that that is the real thing which is to, to to Prince Edward Island politicians say well actually maybe maybe there could be a real incentive to do this. And so I think that's what pushes them into saying, okay, going to Ottawa and negotiating things. And I mean, I suppose the second other thing is that they realized that, you know, they had hoped to, um, you know, negotiate reciprocity, kind of free trade with the Americans, which had been in existence from the mid 1850s to the mid 1860s. Um, You know, the Canadians had wanted that as well, but after the American civil war, the, uh, the Americans just were uninterested in reciprocity at that time for various reasons. And so, PEI finds that it just doesn't have the independence to negotiate that on its own behalf. It's actually subservient in some ways to the to the new dominion of Canada in terms of the fisheries. Its lieutenant governor is is still has to answer to the broader governor general of, of British North America, who's in Ottawa. You know they they just don't have the independence of movement that they they thought they might have had, and so there, there's less. There's, there's, there's more of a sense that they 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 might benefit from from joining this dominion, especially in terms of uh, t- taking over of debts. And, and the last thing is, that, you know, when when they go to Ottawa and they eventually ultimately negotiate, you know the government of Johnny McDonald uh, uh, is actually pretty open to giving them what they want. And so when they actually begin the negotiations, they do provide some, some funds to to make the, the, the land purchases, right? So they're trying to bring them in and they, they get their six MPs, not their five uh, members of parliament. So they ultimately, you could say, I mean, when Prince Edward Island comes into confederation, they kind of get what they wanted in a way that people in Nova Scotia, you know, obviously who came in, but then furiously resented it uh, uh, didn't.
1: That's a okay that's really interesting. So PI e. kind of holds out and eventually gets kind of everything they wanted. They get the money for the land question, they get their debt um uh taken by the Dominion of Canada. They get the six seats they wanted. I this is kind of an interesting thought, but I wonder how much of 1873 and the decision to give PI e. everything they want is reflective of johnny mcdonald's vision of really expanding the country as much as rapidly as possible and as much as possible we know that bc joins in 71 we know that manitoba joins in 71 we know that there's very significant issues in the in the red river manitoba area there is this sort of drive to really get everyone in and i wonder if that plays what do you think just as, as your thoughts do you think that plays a part in johnny mcdonald's sort of openness to pi getting all these these things
0: yeah. I mean, I, the only thing I would say is you know, that that vision of, of an expanded British North America, it, it's already there in in 1860s as well. 1867. Okay. It's just so that's absolutely that vision is already there. It's it's there in George Brown's mind. It's uh, all of these people are keen to do that. It's just they think that by 1873, they're you know, they're just implementing it. They're signing num- numbered trees across the prairies. They're they, they're and And maybe maybe even more importantly, the one thing you didn't mention is. They you know because Joseph Howe, the great father of responsible government of Nova Scotia, gets elected you know in nova scotia as as a slate right after confederation as a slate of anti confederates right and Johnny McDonald very effectively wins howe over and 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 there's a whole negotiation of better terms for Nova scotia so by 1873, he's used to doing this. He, they've been, they've been, they've been winning over the different uh, allies in, in in these different areas, and you know, Justin, Justin McDonald tries to do in in the West as well.
1: Yeah, that's that's really interesting uh, that that you you frame that in that context. I think that's important. So uh, this is an interesting question. What what was the reaction
0: of Prince Edward Islanders to Confederation it, when it finally happens? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think, I, I mean, I don't think it's overwhelming joy and, and excitement, uh, I, I think. Uh, I, so the, amongst the popular press, you know, I think th- th- there's, not a, there's not a great deal of resentment. So you don't get what you get in Nova Scotia or in some ways New Brunswick like this. You don't have this legacy of, of a sense that PEI was brought in against its will. I mean, in some ways you still have this in, in Newfoundland even though there's the, the, the referendum, right? And um, the sense of be, being betrayed and PEI doesn't really have that legacy so that's one thing, and then I would say amongst the political class, it's just it's relief that the dead is taken, the railway debt is taken care of, and uh, uh, that, that that's, that's such a key factor. I
1: always I've heard this anecdote, and maybe you know it, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but that when Prince of Island finally joined, so in, in seventy three the story goes that the sheriff of Charlottetown went up on a balcony and sort of read out the announcement to a crowd that was relatively disinterested in the whole notion whatsoever. I don't know if you've heard this
0: anecdote at all. Uh, I I don't know that anecdote, but I mean, it just fits with that's with the whole story. I mean, and to a certain extent, you know, I, I say this when I when, you know elsewhere when I talk about the history of Confederation. To a certain extent, Confederation, I mean there is some excitement. You don't want to overdo that, but it's not the it's not the pinnacle of of of, of political achievement. I, I I always make the case that the real story of that with that I think we ought to celebrate way more than we do even confederation is a story of responsible government. Mm. And that's a story at the end of the 1840s and 1850s, the real winning for local people in British North America and PEI and Nova Scotia, first in Nova Scotia and, and Ontario and Quebec, winning the ability to you know, have our own democratic institutions as, as we wanted them in the 1860s, which is to say we wanted British institutions within a British empire. And it's at that moment that, you know, if you're looking for political principles that people can really celebrate and, and, and be proud of, that's the moment the 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 pragmatic story of confederation is a is a it's an ambitious story of of spreading a nation but it's it's i i would say it's it's even probably not even as important as as the story of responsible government
1: i want to thank you all for listening today don't forget you can find me on twitter at doc horus it's at d-o-c-b-o-r-y-s you can find us on facebook you can find us on instagram You can find us on Patreon, and you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends.